Welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. I'm your host, Troy Hammond. And on today's episode, we chat with Owen Evans. Owen is the CTO at Timely and one of the great technology leaders that I know. On today's episode, we talk with Owen about attempts and the startups that he's been with. And and Owen is actually the king of attempts, as you'll see. Enjoy. Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. So what do you do? Because like every tech person, great tech person, has some creative element that they do. Do, do we? Do we? I don't know. Uh, my creativity is Dungeons and Dragons, if, if you can yeah. believe that. So And you brew beer, right? I brew beer, yeah. uh, um, which is creative in a different Zen kind of sense. You yeah. know, like you create the recipe and then you spend five hours brewing 50 liters of beer. <laughs> yeah. And do you iterate um, on it? I, I try and make the same recipe multiple times because the trick with beer is consistency. Like if you yeah. can make the same beer and it tastes right, then you've got a good process. And you do it all from um, home? Or do you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a 50 liter brew kit um, yeah. that I inherited off a tech colleague friend. So Duncan, who used to be the platform head of platform at uh, zero yeah, Duncan office. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he um he was moving over to the wire wrapper and said hey i've got a 50 liter brew kit would you like it i said yeah Cheers. please <laughs> so it's got all the burners and pumps yeah. and everything else and then into a big did you know bottle. anything about brewing beer before you start uh now my brother was a big brewer he was living in sydney at the time and uh for my birthday it would have been 10 years ago sent me a kit yeah. and it was pretty much like a plastic fermenter with uh grains that weren't ground at that time. And yeah. I was like, well, what am I going to do for grinding these, these grains? Because apparently you have to grind them, don't yeah. know. Um, and looked up online and Keru was brewing out of his house around the corner from me. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, come on down, I'll I'll grind them for you. And awesome. went down through his basement and he had all this kit set up. And I went, wow. Uh, brewed that beer, it was a wheat beer. Wasn't I'm not a big fan of wheat beers, but it yeah. turned out really nicely. Um, I went, oh, I'll keep doing this and slowly progressed up from bigger kits nice. to bigger kits to bigger kits yeah. nice i'm gonna that might actually i've got two new year's resolutions i'll ask you what yours is after this number one of mine is to say yes this year mm-hmm. so just anytime i'm offered something or yeah. asked to do something say yes yeah, yeah. which has proven to be quite scary already <laughs> um and number two is i want to get into nobody's tr- proposed to you yet. no 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 but like i've eaten some weird stuff and okay, done yeah. like the um melbourne when i was in melbourne over christmas the the river, the, the riverbed that we were staying in, everyone kept saying, oh, look, because of the flooding, it's really not swimmable at the moment. It's polluted and there's probably some sewerage in there, so don't <laughs> swim. And my son was like, hey, Dad, what's your New Year's resolution? I was like, oh, I'm going to say yes. And he goes, I dare you to jump in that river. Oh. Like, oh, <laughs> so I jumped in and then had a very quick shower. Yeah. Um, but the second thing is I want to get into gin making. And so, okay. yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the thing. What's your New Year's resolution? I don't do New Year's resolutions. I don't kind of believe in them so much um, because, you know, what's that arbitrary point in time? Yeah. But uh, certainly this year is a little bit of focus on what do I want to do next? You know, yeah. like trying to build the next thing for myself or yeah. where I want to go. Like not to mention, not to say that, you know, want to move on or anything yeah, like that, yeah, but, but just always thinking, thinking about yeah. the next five yeah. years, 10 that, years plan. So That's a good thing to do yeah. as a recruiter. I highly recommend it. It's, yeah, you know, it's yeah. always good to think about what's next and yeah. don't get stagnant because that's when, you know, I, I most of the time I interview people that are looking for a new job. It's just because they're a little bit bored or complacent mm-hmm. and they haven't started planning even what their current role is next, let alone, you know, yeah, what yeah. the next opportunity is. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of ways that my career can go and my life can go. You all know, like you Nobody saw the pandemic until the pandemic happened, and then it's yeah. like, oh, okay, cool, rethink everything. So you've always got to be open to like change and yeah, exactly. and things changing under yeah. you. And 
We're not allowed to say that word because we keep getting little notifications on our Spotify. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. It is thinking. real. Yeah, yeah. 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 Please yeah. vaccinate yeah. everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so let, let's go back a bit. Obviously, your accent isn't so Kiwi. Um, no, I'm uh, I'm British. Uh, I was born in 1982 in Newcastle upon Tyne, and then uh, moved. My dad uh, was a doctor, and yeah. back in the 80s, the way that you trained as a doctor is you did lots of stints at different hospitals around around the country, essentially. Yeah. So he'd uh, all of myself and my two brothers were all born in different cities around the yeah. UK. Uh, he moved from Newcastle then to Cardiff, which is uh, where I grew up, essentially. That, yeah. was, that was a consultancy opportunity. I thought you were so we Welsh, there. and I was yeah, like, yeah. surprised when you said English there. Yeah, yeah. so I, I'm technically Wayaman, I'm a Geordie, yeah. um, but then grew up in Wales. But I don't really have a Welsh accent. I, I come from a place called Penarth, which is just outside Cardiff. And if you know any Welsh people who are in the south of Wales, they call it the posh end. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. we speak with... Uh, bit of an anglified accent nice but, um, yeah i've been yeah. getting i've been um i've been watching that ryan reynolds documentary about oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so good yeah so good totally um yeah. i mean I, I love embracing the welshness that yeah. i have you know like uh, my my grandparents are welsh and my my father was born in swansea yeah. so i i am welsh um by you know by genetics yeah, um yeah. but certainly growing up there and coming to new zealand in 2007 when i did and seeing the resurgence of tereo and everything else has been like there's a lot of parallels there to that yeah. culture. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's really good. I, so I, as I said, I just came back from Melbourne for Christmas, and the difference between Australian and Indigenous Australians versus Indigenous New Zealanders, they're only just starting mm-hmm. Australia on that journey now. About yeah, yeah. Oh, holy shit, we've been assholes. You know, we should be. <laughs> yeah, 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 we totally. should be think about what we're doing now. And so it was actually really cool to go home and see that they were looking at New Zealanders, that's how we should be doing it. And, we, and I think we can still do it better here, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting when you think about language and culture and how just weird processes can, can affect a culture. Yeah. You know, like uh, in Welsh, you know, Welsh wasn't an official language until the 1980s. You know, to, to run Wales, you couldn't really publish anything in Welsh. It wasn't well. done. Um, it was all English first. Uh, that's that's transformed now. You go into into Wales, everything is bilingual. Mm. Everything has to be bilingual legally. Um, and that's just a resurgence of people understanding what Welsh was yeah. and why it existed. It's a very, you know, creative language. Lots yeah. of poetry and, and music has been written in Welsh over the do you, eons. You know. Do you know the name of that long town? Holy shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what was it like growing up in Wales? And um, so, I'm not going to deny I was, uh, you know, white, yeah, privileged, uh, middle class. Um, yeah. So, I didn't experience the worst of Wales. You know, yeah. if you go to the valleys and you go to well, you're in the posh part, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the coal mining areas, yeah. which was decimated by the Thatcherite era of shutting down coal yeah. mines, it was incredibly uh, poverty stricken. Yeah. Um, I lived in a relatively well-to-do, you know, multi-story house that was rather large for, for my area. So, yeah. you know, I I didn't experience the the hardship that Welsh people have. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly saw it around. You, uh, it's it's quite a vibrant culture. Yeah. Uh, Cardiff is great, you know, like rugby was was my dad's passion. Uh, he's got seats at the Cardiff Bounce Park and yeah. the Millennium Stadium. You know, we used to go and watch Wales play all the time. Yeah. Um, loved there's nothing quite like being in Cardiff's uh, stadium when the mm. rugby's on, like all of the songs that sing around there. Um, and just uh, used to, you know, live by the sea so I could go sailing when I wanted to. I taught sailing for a long time. Um, Do you still sail now? I haven't sailed for about a decade, which uh-huh. is quite embarrassing. But, um, yeah, I used to teach sailing uh, 
like at a university i went and did six months in greece and taught oh, wow. sailing and uh you know i've done france and taught sailing it's it's it, it was an uh, a door opener for me for quite yeah. a while but it's just a great sport like i seem to gravitate towards solo sports so I'm, yeah. i've never been a team sport person um myself you know i like yeah. watching rugby but uh, i'd never play it um but i do you know i ski i sail uh, i play golf you know th those kind of things that are quite solo it's like i don't know maybe it's just about me really caring about how well i do and not really wanting to rely on other people but... being a perfectionist <laughs> yeah maybe I, I like to think i'm a pragmatist not a perfectionist but yeah. maybe I, I just really want to get better at myself and i mm. i remember playing rugby as a schoolboy um and i was easily one of the worst players on the team and just the embarrassment that you're letting a whole side down yeah and especially your dad's a super fan yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just like oh i just can't put up with this pressure of like being the worst player yeah um, who, do you, who do you support in the rugby then um so you know i'm in wellington so you've got to support the hurricanes yeah. um I will play. I will support Wales and anybody playing England because yeah. um, you know I've, I've, I fall on that side of the divide. Yeah. Uh, and then the All Blacks, if if they're playing, certainly the women's team much more than the men's yeah. team. I thought that was just phenomenal play last year. Just what a great tournament to watch! How um, amazing is women's sport in general? The whirlwind now that is behind it finally, you know. And well, I think, finally, right? Yeah. Like after after how long fighting mm. for that? But for me, like watching the women's World Cup was watching rugby yeah. you know whereas when you watch the men's world cup it's you're watching tactics and yeah. you're watching like professional play of a different type and yeah. it's not that fun you know like i there were very few teams in the men's team that play like really open dynamic rugby where yeah. it can shift on a dime you know the great thing about rugby to me when i grew up was depends who turned up on the day as to who would win you could mm. have the best team in the world lose against the worst team in the world in, yeah. in quotes because it depended on the day, you know, mm. like there was always that uncertainty. Whereas nowadays it's kind of dominated by the All Blacks. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not so much in the last year, but um but certainly has been in the past. And that to me is somewhat boring, you know. Like, yeah. There needs to be uncertainty there. No, I like for me, I like women's sport now, I just can sit there comfortably watching women's sport, just loving yeah, yeah. loving it. And like you if you go back, you know, five, ten years ago, if if you're sitting around the pub with a couple of guys and someone said women's sport, you'd almost someone would scoff yeah, yeah, and go, yeah. oh, now you're like, fuck yes, you know? Yeah, I think uh our generation and below definitely. It's yeah. still the elder generation finds it difficult yeah. to treat it as a real sport. Like yeah. and I find it so difficult, you know, my my parents-in-law, for example, you know, yeah. they have made comments before, you know, like, yeah. that I don't really support or agree with. And yeah. you kind of have to have that conversation. Yeah. Actually, it's really good fun to yeah. watch, you know. Well, oh, but it's not real rugby. You know? Yes, yeah. it is. It entirely is. Yeah. yeah. So That's yeah. a generation there. Like my, dad, my dad's a little bit like that. He calls me and tells me stuff that's inappropriate but thinks he's being good about it. Like mm -hmm. He'll say, you know, yeah, like, yeah. He'll say, you know, that women's sport's pretty terrible, but I'm enjoying watching it. And you're like, come on, you know, like it's awesome. You know, hey, yeah, I mean, they're just an interesting generation in a whole, right? Like, yeah. and I, I presume when I'm that age, my kids will be saying the same thing about me, where I've just calcified in certain yeah. thoughts or areas, hopefully yeah. a little bit more progressive again and a bit more progressive again. Mm, I think yeah. so. I think the world's becoming a better place with, you know. I think we just used to change more, right? Like yeah. we're changing more often regularly. This is why we work in the industry we do because yeah. there's one truth in the world and nothing's certain. Nothing's yeah. true. Nothing's true forever. It will change and it's changing more rapidly than ever it has before, yeah. whether it's business, economies, politics yeah. or, you know, uh, sport.
And I think it's largely a fact of people like yourself, right, who have had big profiles in industries and have been talking about how things need to change, how we need to be more inclusive, how we need to do this, and people are starting to listen to these voices a lot more now and say, well, actually, yes. You know? Yeah, I hope so. Like, um, you know, being in a number of startups, and don't get me wrong, some of them I've set up teams that were pretty myopic. You know, yeah. I remember early days, Zero, uh, myself and Tokes were doing a lot of the hiring. Yep. And if you look back on that early stage of Zero hiring, Lots of people look like me or look yeah. like Tokes. You I, know, saw, like- I saw a video because I was so Tokes is coming on the podcast, and um, I was watching like I watch YouTube videos and everything of mm-hmm. people before, and I saw an interview with Tokes with some immigration person about recruiting at Zero, and they did this video about what it's like to work at Zero, and they panned, and I was like, oh, oh, white guys, ooh, absolutely yeah. right, like, um, and you know, all with the best intentions. We weren't yeah. trying to be exclusionary great, we had some women on the team, you know, was, yeah. oh, wow, we should we should clap. No, it's, uh, you know, in hindsight, that wasn't a great way to set it up. But that's the only way we knew how to test talent, you know, yeah. like, are you able to solve the problems that we were able to solve? Yeah. You know, like, in our head, how do we test it? Well, we do some, I, I hate it, but we did coding on a whiteboard, you know, yeah. I'd never do that now. Yeah. Um, it wasn't mature in terms yeah. of the thought process. It worked somehow, yeah. but maybe it worked despite ourselves, you know, like not yeah. because of that hiring. Um, you know, then moving on, Hoist, you know, I set that up and hired two really great graduates, yeah. one through EDA, um, Inspiral Dev Academy, and one through Vic Uni. And mm. those two backgrounds coming together was really interesting. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, one of those I worked with three times after that because she was just phenomenal. Mm. So, yeah. It was I think, really I mean, it's good, good to learn, right? Like, mm-hmm. And I think it's good for everyone to see, you know, that people like yourselves saying, you know, we probably didn't get it right. And I think Tokes on that same interview was saying, oh, yeah, we didn't get it right, but we, it, was the, it was all we knew at the time. Yeah, and yeah, totally. Um, it? It, this is the thing, right? Like, we can't beat ourselves up about yeah. all these mistakes we've made because they were made with good intentions. It was intentions that, that count, right? Like, yeah. well, no, actions count, but... The intentions were there. So all I want to do is learn, right? Like yeah. I'm constantly learning what's better, what feedback I get from the community. I've got really good people who are not like me, yeah. who can talk to me, who can tell me, oh, and you fucked up here, you know, like yeah. don't do that again. That was a really stupid thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I can have those conversations quite openly without fear of, hey, I'll be ostracized from a community or, yeah. hey, you know, I made this mistake. Nobody will ever talk to me again because hopefully they know I'm not, you know, they weren't. I didn't kill anybody. I wasn't malicious. I wasn't yeah. ever going to do, you know, like bad it's things. Just bias, right? Yeah, that's totally. all it was. And conscious bias is yeah. massive. Um, yeah. And we really do have to fight that consciously. You yeah. know, like I, I'm a white male, middle class, you know, like I've yeah. always had privilege that's taken me to a certain point. So. There's a really good sort of the Harvard test, mm-hmm. unconscious bias. I encourage every hiring manager, every person to do it. It's just yeah, a yeah. good way to figure it because we all have bias to figure out totally, where your bias are. Totally. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like every system and process I've got, you know, when I'm talking to hiring tech people into a tech team what systems can i put in place to fight that bias yeah. you know like how how can we do a good process that means that it, even though you're gonna have that bias it won't come into play yeah or you'll have enough data to make a good decision either yeah. way yeah um, you know i still meet people and i work for people who are like you gotta hire quickly you gotta hire quickly and it's like yeah you gotta hire quickly but with purpose and yeah. with good outcomes yeah. at the other end. yeah awesome so then how did you get into tech i mean like Growing up playing rugby and sailing and all these things? Um, so my auntie uh, had an Atari ST um, and gave it to our family. So uh, we had a BBC Model B and an Atari ST uh, 
and they were just phenomenal machines. Um, you know, the things you could do and the games you could play. Um, yeah. And my mum, I credit my mum, actually. She was the most awesome person. Uh, she bought the old programming books that you could get yeah. and would program in the games, like, for us. Awesome. Um, so she would read the code and do yeah. it. So picked up basic through doing that. Um, my eldest brother was really into computing as well but my dad said hey you when he went to university don't do computing because there's no future in it and <laughs> so he went and did chemistry instead yeah. and by the time i came through uh through high school i was uh probably the most advanced person in computing in my school mm -hmm. to a certain extent um most of it self-taught so we were one of the first uh, places on the street to get the internet you know yeah. this magical thing called the internet you know I had the AOL disk and was yeah. dialing up. I had a bulletin board and a few other things. Yeah. And I ended up building websites for other people um, early in the days. Dragon Ball Z was a big thing back still back then. Really? Um, yeah, it really was. What one was of, your first website you ever built? Uh, I built one. Um, so we at school, um, my high school, we had uh, quite a big tie to NASA. Mm. Um, and we used to send people on camp, like space camp, essentially. Yeah. I did a Flash animation, you know, when Adobe Flash was yeah. a big thing, and uh, and website around the school projects around that. It's like I'm scratching my memory, but that was that have, was kind of the first. Have you ever gone back on the Wayback Machine to look at any of these websites? Um, a kind of, uh, you know, like GeoCities when that was a thing. You know, yeah. I had, a, had a website there, a web rig and everything else. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just like... I fell into it to yeah. a certain extent, that side of it. I was deeply into software and programming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my dad used to pull me into work and I was the shadow IT guy. So I built him systems on Access in Excel that, you know, powered his his practice yeah. um, in, in medicine. Because um, there's know. no future in IT. Yeah, because like his IT team in, you know, the NHS were really slow to develop these things that actually he knew would, you know, like it was literally like taking his paper notes and making them yeah. more accessible and searchable for him and his, his secretary. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that got shut down because yeah. <laughs> now I'm actually a bit more mature. I hate having somebody like me in, in the, that team. The data that you were getting from the NHS yeah, yeah, as yeah, a school person. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Um, no vetting, no yeah. nothing. Um, like, uh, But it was, it was really interesting to see how you could build these systems. And I've just been really interested in computers are so logical right like mm. literally you tell them to do the thing and they do the thing mm -hmm. humans are the opposite you know like i i always say i always joke you know it would be so much easier to be in business without people you yeah, know yeah. like whether they're the people in the employees or they're your customers you know mm -hmm. but, but computers are understandable they're deeply understandable mm -hmm. and i was good at it so it was like oh i'm good at something so mm. literally from the age of 15 i knew i wanted to be in computing uh, in some way shape or form yeah. i went and did computer science at university with with no real thought about what it was or why, but just yeah. that I really enjoyed it. And then I picked the university that was furthest away from my parents. <laughs> so I went Newcastle-upon-Tyne or Glasgow. Um, and I didn't actually get the grades for Newcastle-upon-Tyne, so I thought, oh, I'm going to go to Glasgow. Oh, cool, that, that'll be fun. But then Newcastle phoned up and said, ah, yeah, you're coming anyway, so it's fine. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I picked it because back in those days, it was the move from C to Java yeah. as a language, you know, and I didn't want to go to a university that did Java because everybody was moving to Java. Yeah. So Newcastle and, and Glasgow were the two that were stacking on C. And then there was a big announcement just before I started at Newcastle, we're moving to Java. <laughs> In hindsight, it doesn't really matter at all. Yeah. But yeah, it was um, it was just my, I, I want to be, I want to learn the real fundamentals. So C yeah. would be yeah. the thing. We're yeah. purist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then what was your first job? 
Um, so actually, my first job was uh, self-employed, building a little bit of a website during university. So yeah. I have a web, uh, I have an email address that I give out, which is iouk.com, and it stands for Ian and Owen in the UK because yeah. it was Ian and uh, was my partner. And yeah. We did one together, um, so that was technically a paying job. Uh, but really, uh, out of university, I took a gap year, went and taught sailing in Greece and skiing in France for a company called Mark Warner, yeah. uh, who do holidays, basically took, took British people and dumped them in a place and said, hey, you've got a week, you can learn to sail or you can yeah. be guided to ski. So that was technically a paying job. But first job in a professional job in IT uh, was a company called Cresta, which was a testing consultancy back in the day. So working in Derby in the UK, which is a weird place to end up in the middle of the Midlands. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big bank there called Egg Bank, and we were basically testing all of their systems for them. But this is that back in the day where testing wasn't really understood. So I was a QA yeah. to start with, um, but automated QA. So really building automated tests around all of their platforms and how they build those things. Very quickly, I, you know, I made it clear that I, this wasn't for me forever. Yeah. I didn't like just breaking stuff and not being able to fix it at the other end. I liked mm-hmm. being able to do the whole thing. And they pulled me into an internal team. They were building a startup within their own company. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically had a product that sat over their testing work and allowed people to see the quality and assurance that you were getting out of it. Yeah. Um, we built that internally out of uh, an office in London um, for, for a wee while. Awesome. Um, startup before the... You know, before pretty the, much, before yeah. So experimented with really core techniques about how you build product. Um, so we were purely extreme programming. Yeah. There were four of us in the team. You know, like we were pair programming on everything. Everything was together. I was building the build system, hence the reason why I'm known as Buildmaster, because yeah. like, that was really my first programming job. Was I was the build master for that team. Um, built the continuous integration and development system. Yeah. But that really pulled me into the agile movement continuous delivery movement, continuous yeah. integration movement, and I've been a proponent of that ever since because, uh, yeah. you know, I've seen how how badly most software projects are run when they run as a big bang kind of, you know, government-style project. Yeah. Um, even what we call Agile in New Zealand is, you know, way behind where yeah. the thinking was or should be. It's like Agile on paper, but not really. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and, and then uh, met my wife because uh, Cressa was tied to um, a New Zealand company called Frond. Yep. So you know Frond, uh, yep. big consultancy. Yep. We were their partners in um, in London, essentially, in the UK. Um, had a lot of Kiwis who came to to, um, to London. Yeah, Was in an office with a bunch of them. Went, had a party one night and invited some of those friends and one of them brought a friend to the to the party and it's that Katie. turns out to be my wife now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, then yeah. she dragged you back to New Zealand? Uh, Dragon is probably overstating what it is, but um, yeah, she basically said, uh, my working holiday's over, I've got to go home. Uh, I said, I'm coming with you, uh, pretty much, you know, yeah. and ended up living in her parents' house before I'd even really met her parents, so, oh, wow. you know, for a week, because they were on, uh, in Australia watching the Australian Open, um, yeah. yeah, and then they turned up, and there was this random boy in their house, but we had met, we had talked before, yeah. but um, not, not physically met, and they've, they've been great ever since. So, awesome. Yeah. And so then, what was your first job in New Zealand? Um, so I worked for Optimation, mm-hmm. uh, working on the systems for TAB. So, you know, the scroll at the bottom of the screen that yeah. shows you all the betting odds and everything else, we built that at that time. So I was working on that system. Found it deeply frustrating to be behind a salesperson. So, yeah. you know, where as a technologist, I'm going, well, you need to rebuild all these things because what you want isn't what you're getting. You know, you're not mm-hmm. getting bang for your buck. You need to go and do a few of these 
core fundamental things and then you'll get really core value in the sales business like no i can't can't sell that don't want to do it sorry um so spoke to mindscape um mm. because they were advertising for a senior software engineer so jd and yeah. and uh, jeremy boyd back in those days um quite obvious that they didn't want me they wanted a very particular person um that i wasn't the right fit for but they introduced me to a guy called craig who was the cto at zero uh, yep. this, this random startup called zero um and fell into a conversation and ended up uh meeting him and rod and then you know rogery and yep. ending up that's it you know i totally get your vision totally what get where you go what employee number were you at zero I don't know officially, but somewhere in the 20s. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So still, uh, they just moved out of the apartment? Just out of the apartment. So yeah. just after IPO. So it's about a month after they IPO'd. Um, Old Bank Arcade. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we were in a massively swimming office, yeah. loads of space. And then within like two months, it was really cramped. Because <laughs> yeah. we were just hiring like crazy. Because we, yeah. we had a vision and a mission and had to get the people on bodies on the ground to do that uh, what a great experience to watch a rocket ship from the inside you know? did, did you know there was something special about zero when you started i'd like to believe so you know but how many people tell a really good story and you yeah. believe that there's something special it's you know like i can validate it now in hindsight and um, yeah. rod was amazingly persuasive as, yeah. a, as a storyteller you know as a founding storyteller that's what you want you want to believe that there's such a mission and vision here um, and actually, the mission and vision is something that they're kind of only getting to now, where accounting is was supposed to be the the the, the beachhead into the yeah. back office, right? Like for small business, it was never supposed to be just accounting. Yeah. Um, it was always supposed to be quite broad. Turns out accounting is really hard, yeah. and you have to do a lot of work on it, and uh -huh. you have to get it right. Uh, but then it's incredibly sticky. Um, you know, like. But I remember the, the the Christmas before Craig Winkler invested. We kind of all thought we were going to be out of a job coming back in January, February. And then yeah. Rod, um, you know, announced another investment, which was great. You know, like he was phenomenally good at, at just keeping us going, keeping our vision and mission, no matter how tight that tightrope mm. was and that startup life for you. Um, you know, and it was great fun. Uh, I learned a whole bunch of stuff, but I also ignored a whole bunch of stuff that I should have learned, you know, yeah. like, and I've only really understood some of those learnings or lessons um, yeah. post as I've gone into other startups or started my own things and, you know. But that's life. Yeah, yeah. and I've and got think, a lot of failures under yeah, my, under my that, belt, which is great, you know. I actually, not great from an investor point of view, but, you know, like I've wasted a lot of money, but that money is investment in me learning a whole bunch of different things around what makes a good startup versus what makes a bad startup, yeah. what really is important versus not. Um, those kind of things. So, so what do you think is the one thing that you take from the early day zero that you're like, all right, this is something that I would carry through into the next startup? So the one thing I have taken through is openness. Like mm. there was never a moment in zero's days where I didn't feel like the exec team were being incredibly open, incredibly mm. honest around what we were doing and why we were doing it. Like I remember Rod like being nudged by a CFO. You can't say that. You literally can't say that in, you know, in all hands. Yeah. Um, but he did anyway because he knew it was important. It was new. It was about honesty and transparency because otherwise why are you following this leader if they're going to yeah. turn around and go, actually, I was lying to you. We're going over here instead. Or actually, I've got to let all of you go and you had no inkling that there was anything going wrong. You know, that's that's never a good thing to hit. Yep. Um, so I've always believed in transparency and openness and honesty, honesty from, from exec. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know there are certain things you can't talk about. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't expect them to go into depth around why somebody was let go or something else. Yep. You know, those, those things are private for a reason and they're legally private sometimes. Um, but I will always endeavor to let people know what's going on 
to the best of my abilities that I can. Because yeah. honestly, if if you know that and then you want to bail, you should have bailed anyway, right? Yeah. Like it's not the place for you. You've got to be around uncertainty. That for me, like everyone asks me, what's good culture, you know, and how do you scale culture? And in my experience, the only way to scale a good culture, like because we're talking about culture, right? It's five people around a table like this, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days, everyone's just having fun and working and you're like, how do you take that and then scale that? Yeah. And I, and I keep saying to people, the only way you can do it is just be completely transparent, honest with everyone and say, this is going to change. This is what's going to happen yeah. and then it's going to happen. And you're going to fuck up a lot. Yeah. Like you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. You're going to have the wrong people. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to like go in the wrong direction. Yeah. Because you've got to. You've got to try these things. You've got to experiment. And don't get me wrong, you want everybody to understand understand why you made the decision which is where the openness and transparency yeah. comes in it's like it's not a hey why did we do that like there was no data around it like yeah. it's really easy to say that after the fact like yeah. yes that was a mistake we shouldn't have gone that you know yeah. like i 100 percent agree <laughs> most of my startups you know that have, that have not worked have been really obvious in hindsight at the time it's very very hard because we were trying to prove that thing that couldn't be done you know yeah. that's what a startup is you're trying to prove something that hasn't been done yet yeah. in a world that doesn't exist yet so you've got to try some things that look a bit stupid on paper because um, yeah. some a, of them might work. There's a bit of a trend there. So Vend, I worked at Vend. Um, I can't remember what number I was, like maybe 300 or something. Mm-hmm. But um, the same thing, we had complete transparency and had an open-door policy on meetings. Yep. So you could go to any meeting that you chose to. Not that you'd probably go and sit on every exact meeting, but yeah. if you had, saw something on the agenda that was interesting to you, you could go and sit in the room or you know jump or dial in these days. Um and it's same that people just felt empowered by the, the, the honesty and the transparency of the business and as it was growing. And so I think it's just I've met a lot of founders who are deeply scared by openness and honesty because they think it's their job to shield their team from these uncertainties. Um, I do have to talk them through to, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah. Well, that person's going to leave. Okay, do you think they're going to stick around when they find out the truth? Because it yeah. will come out, right? Like, it will happen. Yeah. And the answer is no. It's like, well... Are you would you prefer that they left knowing the thing early yeah. and they're still your friend and they're yeah. still, you know, that understand why the decision was made? And they won't take five people with them because they felt betrayed. Uh-huh. You know? 100%. So, yeah. yeah. So it can be so self-destructive when you start to try and, like, protect people from information that actually, you know, it's just part and parcel of being yeah. in an uncertain world of a startup, right? Yeah, so, awesome. Yeah. What was the thing that you're most proud of at Zero that you personally contributed to? Um, I think we, that's a really uh, good question because I don't really know, right? Like mm-hmm. I look at Zero blue sticker, I do, I'm immensely proud of the product that we created, how we created it. We were one of the first internet companies out of New Zealand yeah. with a big product, right? Like not just internally focused New Zealand product. We always used to joke around people would either go to Zero or, or to trade me. Yeah. And we used to joke to everybody, why would you go to trade me only? I New Zealand wars used in the windows. Right? Like, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Um, whereas we were globally focused and people would be using us from around the world. You know, that mission paid out. Um, I am deeply proud that we created an engineering culture. Like it yeah. wasn't just a sales and marketing-led culture. It was very much a we cared about how things fitted together and we were able to have those conversations around building some good systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm proud that good people worked there and they were given really good opportunities to learn growth and scale and yeah. you know i count some of my best friends at, from that time you know yeah. um and you know we have created wealth for new zealand so that that's been a really good byproduct of creating good export economy yeah. products you know yeah, yeah. And, do you, and do you think largely like rod's 
aggressive vision sort of help with that? Or do you think just everyone contributed to that? Uh, everybody contributed, right? Like everybody's part of a machine. Like it, yeah. it can't be one person. It yeah. can never only be one person. Rod, don't get me wrong, his his laser focus and and this is going to succeed no matter what. Yeah. Um hugely useful. He knew the he knew the vision, he knew what it could become, he knew where we could go, and he understood eco- economics, right? Like yeah. he knew how to sell it, how to make it a good product. Um but we would never have survived had we not solved a whole bunch of problems along the way from you know how do you scale the sales team you know like we we started out even when i joined it was thinking you know the biggest sale would be taking people from component uh competitors who were who we just didn't like you know didn't it's not we didn't like the people or the products it's just the clunkiness of working with those systems because nobody else was online you know like yeah. the, the workflow was so much easier turned out that's not true actually our biggest sale was from people just starting up and starting mm-hmm. up with a new business because that's you know less inertia mm-hmm. so most people came from pen and paper um and people weren't changing um accounting systems you know originally i think you know people were thinking oh we don't need an accountant if we're running zero yeah turns out actually accountants were our bigger sales force they're mm. so good at selling a system that they could work really well in so that the, all those shifts that ha- had to happen along the way they didn't come from you know one person they yeah. came from observations of the market you know philip with his amazing view for design and where he could go there so yeah. you know um I think it was a very, very driven team. We were all driven to succeed. I, you know, I spent weekends working on, occasionally on some things that just had to get done. Yeah. You know, I remember Zero Personal when we were launching that. Just spent a couple of weekends pre-launch, just trying to get the grids to work properly the way that we wanted them to. Really deeply technical challenges. Yeah. Um, stupid now, you know, like oh, that was so simple, but you know, these things mm. exist now. I could get them off the shelf, but back in those days, they just didn't exist. Mm. So, you know, I remember. You know, a data center going down uh, in Rackspace where we were hosted in in Virginia and Facebook went offline and Twitter went offline and we were the only ones talking to our customers around what was going on. And, they were, you know, turned out um, they were doing a power test at the same time as a truck drove into the generator. Oh, wow. Like, And so everything went down. Mm. Um, but it was amazing to see that we were on the same level as as Twitter and Facebook back in those days, you know, nowadays they've got data centers up the wazoo, but, um, yeah. you know, it was, it was fun. It was like, there's just a scrappy moments where you're yeah. learning, like social media became a thing. Um, we succeeded because, you know, Catherine went out and became orange girl on Twitter. Yeah. And, o- the OG OG. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she just owned that space because Twitter was around about 2007, you know, like it was a very similar, it was just a genesis of a lot of different products at the same time. Yeah. Um, as we all, grappled with the next stage of the internet and what it would mean and how it would happen nowadays you kind of take all of these things for granted yeah but they just didn't exist yeah they just did not exist and it was so much fun to invent some of that stuff awesome yeah, yeah. so you were at the time you left zero you were chief architect yeah i was chief architect um i like to explain to people i was not people management but i was the technical side of CTOing yeah. here in wellington so craig our cto was beachheading america and mm-hmm. um, he was kind of our first employee to really go into America and stay there because mm-hmm. he just loves America always has New York, hey? yeah. he's now in New York so mm-hmm. he did two stints while I was there he did New York then came back then went to San Francisco then came back and went back to New York um I think New York was always his his dream mm-hmm. but that's where he wanted to be and he is you know he's uh, he's loving it there as far as I know mm-hmm. um is he still a zero 
Uh, no, he's he's recently, like within the last year or two, um, moved on. So right. yeah, couldn't tell you the company he's with right now, but yeah. uh, back at the early scrappy days, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, it was uh, it was pretty much leading the technology challenges of the team. In hindsight, I, nobody told me what that job was or how to do it or why to do it or what my outcomes were. I was just the most senior engineer on the team, I guess, who they trusted to to do these things. So they yeah. took me aside and said, hey, we'd like you to take this role. Um, it was kind of just to keep some technical direction going and make some good architectural decisions around the place. Um, yeah. But yeah, in I think I could have set that job up a little bit better <laughs> in hindsight. Yeah. Um, had I known, you know, like my job was to not bike shed everything, you know, whereas yeah. I was very egalitarian. I was like, ah, oh, I've got really great senior people around. I want you all to have an opinion. Yeah. And like, there's no wrong opinion, but there were lots of opinions, as yeah. you can imagine. And actually, my job was to go in and pick one, you know, yeah. um, when there's no clear winner. Um, I only understood that afterwards, really. That was really what my core job was. Um, and then to be hiring and to be recruiting and to be a voice for, yeah. for the tech team around around New Zealand. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I remember recruiting for you back in the day. You probably don't remember it, but I used to recruit for you, Tokes, and uh, Philip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hated recruiting for Philip. He was the <laughs> hardest hiring manager. He hated everyone. Hated yeah, yeah. He, was, he was always very perfectionist. Yeah. Like it's, it's the design mindset, right? Yeah. Like I like to say designers are just naturally unhappy with everything because that's yeah. why they're designing. Yeah. You know, like yeah. They look at that and go, oh, that's really badly yeah. designed. I could do that so much better. And it's a door or something. And I'm like, yeah. I'm just walking through the door. I don't really understand why... You're so grumpy, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah like he made Phil- a few of my candidates cry from from interviewing. Oh, wow. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you and Tokes were good interviewers because you had a bit of a system that you would yeah. do. And so I used to tell candidates, "This is the process. These are the things." And Tokes even had a blog, I think, at the time mm-hmm. that he wrote on what what makes a good interview. And yeah, so, yeah, totally. Um, I do remember, like, I loved interviewing with Tokes in the room. It was it was a good like double act we had. Essentially, yeah. we knew how each other thinks, and then you know it would just come down to how it wasn't very scientific i'll give like i'm sorry to anybody i interviewed at that period of time you know sometimes you'd lose out on the job for no real good reason apart from we didn't feel like you would succeed but we couldn't really we couldn't always put a um a name to it or just go sometimes it was gut feel Uh, after you know an hour's conversation it's like i'm really sorry but i don't think it's going to work yeah sometimes you know within 10 minutes and the one thing i do like about tokes and myself is we would tell the candidate as soon as we knew. Like yeah. we wouldn't, we wouldn't waste an hour. It yeah. would be like, "I'm really sorry, this isn't going to work." You know, that's, very in, rarely. In my happens, opinion, that's but, the best yeah. way to do it. Yeah, yeah, very rarely. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, and usually, it was really fundamental. Like uh, you just, you just not there yet. Not there. Yeah. You know? And try and guide them as to yeah. what they should go and work on. There were some people, some companies that we'd ha- we'd interview people who came from that company, and then we go uh like they i think fnz back in those days yeah. was was notorious for for driving people to work all night and mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, bad employer in my yeah. books and yeah. the people who came out of there were scarred by that yeah. like and zero wasn't the place to rehabilitate so yeah. we were very uh, we we're very open and honest about that it's like it's not you it's the fact that you've got some of these baggage and scars that yeah. you're going to bring and you're going to have a detrimental experience here so we we were caring but yeah. that probably didn't feel like it to the person who's just been told you're not going to get a job. <laughs> it must be hard, though, as a hiring manager of a company that is deemed the place to work, right? 
to yeah. be considerate because that becomes everyone's dream job all of a sudden mm-hmm. and then you're the one responsible for telling them yes and no about their dreams, yeah. right? Uh, a lot of pressure, um, but I didn't really feel it that way. Um, you know, I was always thinking, is this the person who would take my job eventually? I hope they will. You know, like yeah. Rod had a really good saying is you're hiring your replacements. Yeah. And he didn't mean like you're leaving. He meant you're going to go and do a different job. Yeah. And that's the thing with startups, right? Like you, everybody's evolving. Every job is evolving. I've taken that to heart. You know, like yeah. in early stage startups, you're generally hiring people who will replace you in the work that you're currently doing so that you're freed up to do other work. Yeah. Um, I remember we opened up a graduate recruitment program while I was at, at Zero, and I sat with myself and Tokes, I think, sat, sat with a stack of around about 800 CVs to get 10 placements, you know, mm-hmm. and it was it was demoralizing. Yeah. <laughs> it was like there are this many people who really want to work in tech who mm-hmm. cannot get a job and are desperately just flinging out their CVs. Some of them were so ill thought out, it was obvious that they were just scattergunning to everybody. Yeah. But some of them were like, oh, I wish I, wish I could get like 20 or yeah. 30 of you. I mean, nowadays, I think their recruitment for, for graduates is much bigger. But yeah. the first, you know, the first batch was, um, well, they were sat around a boardroom table, so it couldn't have been more than seven or eight, you know. Um, yeah. Great that we started it. But, Grad know. recruitment back in the day was horrendous too. Like the, some of the shit that people used to make them do, like mm-hmm. put them put 20 people in a dark room with no lights on and they've got to figure out a task that's in there and all this shit yeah, that yeah. people, I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we learned, we learned. So then why do you leave Zero at its peak to then go and do your own startup? Yeah, interesting. Uh, I I always joined Zero knowing that I was interested in how the foundation of businesses happened, like mm-hmm. how that early genesis works. Um, so uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Butel, who had previously worked at Zero, had his own uh, company building add-ons End- to Zero. Endgame, yeah. Yep. Um, and he was building a number of add-ons that were looking very similar to each other. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I've got this idea. I'd like to build a platform to build this kind of application on. And I was looking at those days, it was the JavaScript and the front end was getting more and more complicated every mm-hmm. single day. Um, you know, the back ends were, were not easy to get into um, for web. And I was like, I remember building my first websites and it was literally get a notepad, write HTML tags at the top and bottom, and that was it. That was all yeah. you had to do, and you've suddenly got, you know, table format. Uh, it was it was awful for a front-end developer yeah. now, but really fundamentally easy to get a website up and running. Yeah. Um, we'd lost that somewhere along the way. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than this. So I was deeply interested in the idea. He asked me to come on as a founding CTO, essentially, take a bit of a percentage and and be paid as well so it was a paid job i was like yeah i'm gonna have to see this through i'm gonna have to try um so it was just a niche that i had to scratch it was hoist so we started hoist yep uh still like my baby i love it so much i wish we could have made that a success i still wish it existed like there are so many days where i go i wish this 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 exists so it was i remember as a young recruiter back in the day um not that it was that long ago but um (laughs) the you and who was the Jamie? Was it Jamie? Jamie? Yeah, 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 I Jamie remember the, like just knowing of you guys. And Jamie moved to the states, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, "Man, this would be so cool if you guys get this off the ground so fast globally." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we were always global from day one, focused because this was a developer product, and you know we were talking to VCs in or you know high net worth people in New Zealand, and the first questions are, "Are you in accounting? No. Are you in agriculture? No." And I don't want. Yeah. anything to do with you sorry don't understand it you know like 
developers what are developers i don't understand it developer experience mm, yeah um so timing wasn't great uh, i remember being in like this was so early days we could get in the room with anybody so i've been in the room with like microsoft execs and yeah. and aws execs talking about hey you can totally host code without a server you could put a, a function that just runs in a in a machine that we can we can own and we can host and it's yeah. so easy so get, let's let's stop there for a second yeah, yeah. So how do you prepare to get into the room with these people? Talk me through what did you do and what were you thinking about to then go out and pitch? Uh, I mean, we had a number of different pitches that that came, whether it was we were asking for money or whether we were asking for customers. Um, and really, one thing uh, is everybody likes to, in Silicon Valley, so we did, um, we very quickly got over to San Francisco mm. and knew that was the place we needed to be, right? Like mm -hmm. the Valley was where developers were that's yep. where people understood our, our tooling and what we we're doing so we very quickly got over there we got through all of our connections in new zealand saying who can we get in the room with um ben capes was really really good at yep. introducing us to a bunch of people in the cloud you know yep. he was a he was the know, cloud guy then. he was the cloud guy right yeah. like um so ended up talking to some people at salesforce and heroku through introductions from him, and then they would introduce us to another person to go and talk to. It's like, hey, here's my thoughts. I'd like you to go and talk to X, mm. Y, and Z. You know, we were young, naive, really didn't know what was going on, but we were following all these breadcrumbs, and everybody was really, like, trying to work out whether we were worth investing in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, giving us some advice along the way. We, we were you up, nervous walking into these rooms with these people? Or always, you, yeah. always. Um, and it was so funny. So we would do Sandhill Road, which is where all the VCs yeah. are. And I think we did like four on a day sometimes. You know, like you go to Bessemer or you know, one of the other VC firms. All the names now escape yeah. me suddenly. Um, but then we'd go home to our, our rented apartment uh, that we'd had for a couple of months and Silicon Valley, the TV show, was <laughs> launching. And literally, I cannot watch that show because it brings back a bit of PTSD. So it's like, it's, I've had that conversation. It's really That's good. my conversation. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember working at 8i when Silicon uh -huh. Valley was a thing and they were talking about the compression algorithm. And then I like, watched that TV show at night and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so true um, that it's not even a parody, really, sometimes. It's, well, like, it, it's yeah. so true. So I remember Huge. Mm -hmm. um, this is before you were at 8i, said to me, hey, Troy, we need a compression um, re algorithm researcher. And then he was he took me into the room and started writing compression algorithms on the on the whiteboard. And I was like, no, I have yeah. no idea. Like, this is all flying over my head. But I was like, okay, just taking mad notes and trying to figure out what this person does. And he was talking about the Google's V.969 v. Uh -huh. compression yeah. algorithm. And, so, and then later that night I'm laying in bed watching <laughs> Silicon Valley and then – I see them them writing that compression algorithm on uh -huh. the whiteboard, and I was looking at it. Going, and I said to my, my my wife at the time, my ex wife now, I said, "I've been in that room. That actually looks like a real algorithm." Yeah, yeah. So then I googled um, compression algorithm specialist forced TV show Silicon Valley, and then this article pops up: Mistra, the compression mm -hmm. specialist that IBM Watson consults to. And so I reached out to him, and a week later we were interviewing him at 8i. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. like that show and was I do amazing. believe that um, this is a second-hand story, so I can't guarantee that it was true, but one of the pitches that, um, that the AI crew went into, there was a producer from Silicon Valley yeah. in the room listening to the pitch yeah. to understand what those conversations yeah. were. So it's just freaky. But, yeah, um, this, was, this was exactly the time when the first season of Silicon Valley launched we, we were trying to raise money for Cring host. Cringe, yeah. yeah. And it's just awful. But, yeah, you're basically – you just introduce from person to person to person and everybody's trying to find 
Well, I'd like to say that um, most of the investors are looking for red flags, right? Like yeah, yeah. Two or three red flags. We instantly had one because none of us lived in America or were American. So it was yeah. always going to be a remote investment, which wasn't that clear back in the day for them. Like it was a higher risk yeah. thing. Uh, the second one is, you know, we were pre-product. We were pre-launch. Um, yeah. We very quickly got a technical product together, but it was it was early days and yeah. wired together. Um, and then the third one, uh, you know, could have been anything that they just didn't like in the list. So we ended up raising a little bit of capital, but not a huge amount. Um, yeah. And all of it from uh, from one VC firm here in um, in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, that was trickled out over a course of three months. By which point, we kind of spent that money on marketing, sales, delivery. Yeah. Um, it was very little amount of money and uh, hard to come by as well. So yeah, we were struggling. Uh, it was a it was a hard, rocky road to get that that product going i still love it as i said like um you know the idea that you can get an application and just give it to somebody else to host but then you know after having glazed looks at us from the microsoft execs when we're talking about that concept lo and behold you know a year later azure has azure function aws yeah. has lambda and it's like yeah. oh well that was the basis but yeah. you missed all of the juice that we actually put on top of that so it's like ah, oh, there's still there's still a market for it i think but Nah, it's um, it, I feel like that, like, that boat is sailed. So. Like everything's now that we're mating and no code, and mm-hmm. you know, so there's there's, there's an yeah, appetite yeah. now. Yeah, so we were very much in the same space as um, as Zapier and mm-hmm. a few others. That's hence the reason why I got to know the Zapier founders early on. Yeah, um, and then uh, so we gave that a four year push. Uh, ended up in conversations with Orion Health to see if Hoist could be their um, developer portal. Yeah, um, essentially that's that's where we thought we could do really good sales. Was you know build a hoist version white labeled for yeah. zero or or around health um they did a restructure like literally a month after we started a conversation so it wasn't going to happen so yeah and then we went uh, we're kind of out of capital we're out of ideas time we, to move on yeah we had to move on so came and spoke to ai and um after talking to tokes so yeah, yeah yeah and then so what did you do what did you come to ai to do uh, i was building out the platform ai is a virtual reality yeah so volumetric company. volumetric yeah. video so basically 48 cameras all synchronized on a green stage uh, that can reproduce that what it sees in three dimensions yeah. absolutely amazing technology don't get me wrong um i was building out the cloud-based uh systems to do that so taking what had to be on a stage to start with and seeing whether we could produce it in cloud yeah um with the idea that we'd scale the the the, the stages lots of stages or producing on our platform yeah uh, way in advance of where we should have been uh, in hindsight you know like we really should have been thinking it about. sounds like a lot of your career you've sort of just been on the precipice before yeah. just slightly yeah, before. It's timing, it's timing, yeah. Right? um so uh built a really good team there uh, ended up as their vp of engineering yep um through a change of ceo that kind of just made sense um i kind of emailed the incoming ceo and just said hey the culture's not where it should be in in wellington new yep. zealand just so you know, uh, love to help you on that. And he said, hey, yeah, love your help. Would you mind being the VP of engineering? Um, I went, hmm, I'll have a conversation first. Yeah. Um, so I had a chat to, to him and it turned out, you know, had a really good exec team that I was working with. Uh, Is that Steve? Or yeah, so Steve. Yeah. Um, and then worked with Tony. And, yeah. you know, it was a really good group of people who I learned a lot from. Um, How was that working at 8i? Because for, the, for people listening or watching that don't know 8i, 8i had a really... Like big research R and D team, 
Mm-hmm. So you're working with a lot of researchers that are embedded as a part of your tech, and I imagine that that's not something that you'd work with. It's before. not a natural lens that I have. You know, yeah. like I'm not a research engineer. I'm not, you know, not writing scientific papers. And it was really interesting to work with them. You know, like sometimes interesting is a is a code word for yeah. hard and, yeah. And, yeah. and painful. And there were moments where it was hard and painful. Don't get me wrong, because I didn't know what they were doing really on a day to day basis. I couldn't get that balance right in my head. You know, like. For me, it was we're building a product company. We have to invest in product and get something to yeah. market. And for them, it's like I really want the blacks to be blacker. I'm being facetious, but yeah. you know, like that kind of conversation. I'm like, do we know which customer cares about the blacks? No. So you know, I've I've always been this experimental. You learn from the customers, yeah. you learn from the market, and then you feed that into what research you should be doing. Whereas, you know, uh, for them, their whole career has been built on the next paper that they build they, they write or do yeah. or um or publish uh, which totally understand you know don't get me wrong it's not wrong or right it's just different yeah um and i found that that working environment particularly complex and and hard i will admit it was one of the harder groups that i've do you think do you think it was that. good though for you in terms of your career to try and learn how to manage oh, totally. people? Yeah, yeah so you know i'm an advisor now into a few different startups um some of them are deeply in like um uh AI and, and that kind of things, which also relies on a lot of research, yep. you know, um, and I can help them understand that different mindset because I've, while I've not done it, I've still felt, you know, I've had feedback yeah. and I've, I've had conversations with them. Um, but it's a, it, it, it's a brutal world. Like research is, is brutal. Um, yeah. It is, you know, they, they have to like stand on their peers to get one rung ahead and yep. publish that paper first or whatever it is. It's just, it rewards really weird behaviors. Yeah. Um, to me, really weird behaviors, you know. Uh, they're all lovely, lovely people. But, you know, I remember one of one of the team at AI was in nights all the time, and I just had to sit him down and go, why are you doing this? Like, we've not got a massive deadline you've got to hit. Nobody's telling you to do this. It's like, I don't feel good enough. This is the only way I can feel like I'm getting ahead. And I had to have a conversation with him around, this isn't healthy, right? Like, you're, yeah. you're taking your tiredness and your out on the rest of the team like he was notorious like people knew he, he had moods essentially yeah. and I was like you've got to calm down like this isn't healthy um, whereas you know my application engineers kind of understood that because they've been around product companies for yeah. a long time they know this is a long burn uh, this isn't just a moment the, in time there wasn't many places like if you think for where researchers like the game studios mm-hmm. or the big research shops and they were treated pretty poorly in those places yeah yeah, yeah. VFX has always been a uh, grind to the bottom right yeah. like you know the the studios will take the vfx production to wherever it's cheapest to get that, that yep. done um that's notorious you know uh and a lot of these people have come from weather digital and you know i remember early stories about weather digital none of them are i can't corroborate any of them yeah. but you know like of people sleeping under desks of working on massive deadlines that are that movie has to get shipped at that time yeah and you're getting paid until you do it right but yep. not well enough to sleep under your desk but yeah. yeah just grinding people and burning them out really quickly i've heard the same stories yeah so i i was uh part of ADI as well i worked on the people and culture team mm-hmm. did a lot of the recruiting um and i always heard really good feedback about you as a manager there from the researchers and the engineers and the likes and that's something that i've constantly heard about you um i want to talk about this in a bit more yeah, detail yeah. because for me there's like technical managers you know, like it's especially when a startup, like all of a sudden, fuck, you're the CTO mm-hmm. and you're managing all the people now. Yeah. What do I do? Most of them never had experience with that before. Probably don't have as especially high. in New Zealand, right? Yeah. Like we 
we, this is zero to a T, had a whole bunch of managers who became managers, myself included, who never got training, never understood what management was. It was like, okay, so now do I tell people what to do? Um, it took me actually till 8i and getting an executive coach as part of my role, which I'll always say is the most advantageous thing I've ever had is somebody to sit me down, a neutral party, have a conversation with and really bounce ideas off and him to, for me to understand what management was, yeah. why I existed, which is to enable a space where great work can happen. It's not to do the great work. It's not to be the one who can do all the great work. It's to make sure that people are producing their best work ever. Um, yeah. And that's not lots of work. That's smart work, right? Like that's working the right things at the right time. And the way that you do that as a good manager for me is it's all about setting context. It's all about that openness and transparency. It's about making sure that people... The person who's going to be making the decision, which is usually the person who's doing the work, has enough information that they will make the right decision at mm. the time. Because as soon as they've got to go and ask somebody else, well, you've just wasted a whole bunch of time. You're going to get a, a layer of like a different story or something. Uh, and then you know it, it goes off the rails. That's always the way it goes off the rails is when people don't have the context of why decisions are being yeah. made or what the outcome that people are focused on. Um, so I coach a lot of CTOs out of a startup world because they're exactly that, right? They're yeah. tech people who are really good at their job and now suddenly they're managing people or now they're the leader, leader of a whole department. Like, what the fuck? How do I do this? Yeah. How do I actually get good at this? Um, and really coach them on, you know, not owning all of the things, not holding on to this skill that you had, which is usually writing software, right, or solving yeah. software problems, and deciding whether you're actually going to be a people manager or not. Because yeah. a lot of tech leaders, founders, are not given that knowledge to know that there's multiple options here. You can become a people leader, yep. but you don't have to. Like If you really get your buzz from the flow, from the technical challenges, you can go and be a technical-focused person you can be the like the foundational engineer forever because yeah. nobody's going to kick you out of your own startup right um but it does mean that you have to back your skills up with somebody else right so you know if you're a cto who really wants to go technical i always advise you're looking for a vp of engineering at some point yeah um or you're looking for those core managers who can really enable a good performing team yeah um, but you want them at the same level so that they can have really core conversations together and make decisions together but also present them to the whole exec team because really it's the people that make a comp company no matter what yeah. like you're always working with this group of people and it's what this group of people can achieve and what can the outcome be with these people you can't change the people mm. um, you can change all of the rest of the things but you're not going to change the people i mean don't get me wrong you can because people will leave and you hire new people but fundamentally you're trying to solve the problem with these people and mm. it's you know some people are really good at certain things and really bad at other things and need information in different ways you know like the same message delivered 20 times is can be heard in 20 different ways by different people right so what, yeah. what do you say to someone who's listening to this that's just taken their first technical management role and like i i hear a lot of people that i interview them and they'll, and they'll say oh i don't want to be a manager you know i want to stay technical but mm -hmm. i want my career to grow and i don't feel like i can grow yeah, as yeah, fast yeah. on that side and so they say maybe i should be a technical manager and so sometimes they'll jump into that role purely because of money or career growth, yep. and they're like, holy fuck, what do I do now? Yeah, so yeah. what would you say for them as some good outlets to do straight away? Obviously, mentoring for you was a big thing. Yeah, so I do believe in getting mentors or getting a coach or like for, because it worked for me. So that's a bit of, yeah. bit of bias, you know, um, that kind of sense. Why did it work for you? It was a safe space that I've never had before where I could talk about the challenges oh. I was having and then with a 50,000 foot view, be asked 
outcome focused questions you know like what am i trying to actually achieve here and so that space to actually mull over some questions and ideas yeah. and get better self-awareness yeah. so you know self-awareness is is key when you're a manager you've got to know you know if i don't eat breakfast before 8 p.m 8 a.m you know and i'm in a meeting in that morning i'm going to be this kind of person when i show up you know yeah. because your your job is to be in meetings and shuffling yeah. information and being in charge of people the hardest thing for engineers when they go into management is the feedback loop so mm. when you're an engineer and you're a software engineer and you're writing code your feedback loop is i write the code it works i commit i put i do a pull request and somebody accepts that pull request i get an endorphin hit right like yeah. that's the reward cycle it's yeah. pretty short it's usually a day or two at most hopefully it's an hour um for a manager depending on how high up your cycles get longer and longer and longer so you know i'm an exec my cycle is about a year before I know the decision I made today, whether that was the right decision to make, um, because it's whether the team is still producing great quality software or, you know, we're going in the right direction or we've not run out of money. Yeah. Um, that's a long period of time before you know whether you're doing a good job. I never actually know whether I'm good, doing a good job, right? Like that's, mm. that's the truth of my job is I think I'm doing all right, but would they have succeeded without me? Don't know, because there's no A-B test, yeah. right? Like I can't have another team where I don't manage and go, cool, you're the same people, can you achieve the same thing? Um, so you kind of just got to have a little bit of gumption to back yourself and go, I think I'm doing all right. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the other side is you've got to be a, you've got to want the team to succeed. It's not about you anymore, it's about them and you succeed yeah. in, in like this this reflected glory as it were. Um, you know, I never do anything really on the code anymore or in the tools for most of the startups that I'm a core manager for because that's not my job and actually if I wrote the code I do a really shitty job because somebody else hasn't learned to write that code it's not because yeah. I wouldn't be able to write that code I could totally solve it yeah but you know I've lost the opportunity to teach three different people how the system works or how to solve this problem um, yeah. and that's the job of a good manager so you know like the CTOs that I that I coach they always always the challenge is they want to solve the problem as fast as possible and that's usually them getting involved right yeah. that's that's the quickest way from i've got a problem that's solved i know how all the system works because i built the damn thing yeah i could totally do that um what i point out to them is okay you've solved that problem it's going to happen again in a month or two months time nobody's you've lost all of this opportunity to get knowledge shared and more people working on it and more people understanding so that eventually you know, you can step out or do yeah. other things or do better things, you know, like you're not actually floating multiple boats, right? You're not getting better. Yeah. That's the thing. You're just always going to be solving this problem. Um, yeah. I remember, I can't remember what CTO said it to me, but he, he used that coach sporting mentality, like the analogy where <laughs> he was like, I couldn't be a good CTO until I pulled myself out of the game so I could see the whole game yeah. and be able to figure out what was going on in the future as well. Yeah. And so that's why I love coaching. That's why I love mentoring is so that I can be a 50,000 foot view for yeah. somebody else. And then hopefully I can take some of those things when I experience the same thing again. It's like, oh yeah, I've just talked about this. I should totally do yeah. that. Uh, it's one of my own medicine, as it were. You know, yeah. Can, can everyone be a good technical manager? No, I think you've got to want to uh, at a simple level. Like it's not for everybody. Um, and uh, by technical manager, I mean people manager over technical people, yeah. right? Like yeah. you can totally be a technical technical manager where you're an architect or yeah. you know you're a principal engineer and you're deciding how systems are built together and you're trying to collaborate together. Like that's that's a different skill. Is a management skill, but it's not a it's not a people management skill. I'm talking about people managers over technical people. Um, no, 
I think anybody with any background can be. So I don't believe that you have to be a software engineer to manage software people. Yeah. I think some software people need a software background yeah. person to manage them, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not it's not the manager, it's the, people, I, the person them. that's yeah. got the problem. They want the credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. You know, it's the bullshit factor. It's yeah. like being able to call bullshit. So um, you need a baseline level of like, yeah, that's not true, is it? That's that's really yeah. not true. When you say that's going to take six months, you're, you're bullshitting, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're, or you're overthinking the problem usually, right? Like that's the problem with technical people. Gross generalization, but you know, yeah. um, is that they're quite perfectionist or they like to go into the detail because they've been burned by these things before, not yeah. doing that. So they end up with like, I've overthought the problem, whereas actually yeah. the outcome that I want is over here. And the good manager will go, This is the outcome I want, not this is the solution I want built. This is the outcome I mm-hmm. want. How quickly can I get there? Or this is these are the things I'm optimizing for. Um, you know, like if I'm in a startup, I'm optimizing for time because time is money, um, you know, and cost. So, you know, it's like, okay, this is the outcome I want. How quickly can I get there and how mm. quickly can it be run? You know, that's why we make very quick decisions in startups and sometimes build shit tech. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, MVP Live. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, did you take a lot of these learnings into Journey? And what was different about going from AI? Because you went AI Journey? I went AI and then I worked for Zapier for a year. Oh, that's so, right, yeah. that was deliberate. You know, I knew the founders of Zapier and yeah. got in touch with them and said, hey, I'm, I'm on the market. And Zapier had always being a poster child of remote work. Yep. So I you know, uh, I wanted to experience what it was like to be in a remote first company spread around the world. Yep. Um, Tough. Yeah, it was At really fun. It was it was great fun because it was pre-pandemic, yep. uh, get vaccinated. Um, it was pre that period of time. Um, so we were traveling. You know, I went to America a couple of times to meet my team and a few other people. Yep. And, and the founders of Zapier really understood that you have to invest in that trust like yeah. getting people together so remote working is great because it you start with trust right like i trust that you know whoever's online is working i don't really care you know yeah. i expect they're doing the, the best job because i'm doing my best job and so you know whether i'm hanging washing occasionally or not doesn't really matter because i'll get the good outcomes so you're outcome focused when you when you're remote first yeah um you can you, you're well. half your team on the other side of the world right so you'd be working completely different times yeah, yeah so i had um that was the hardest thing for me uh, so i was managing a team um, one of the more high performing teams at zapier in terms of you know we were high growth we were getting a lot of shit done and we were also driving a lot of the engine for mm-hmm. zapier's growth as a product um but i had a one person in Africa reporting to me. All of the time zones in America had somebody in them reporting to me yeah. and then somebody in Sydney reporting to me. So it meant my day started at like 5 or 6 a.m. I'd be done by 1 p.m., um, but I couldn't get into a co-working space on a casual basis and be allowed in at 6 a.m. So it ended up being, you know, I live in Upper Hutt, which is, you know, I like the rural lifestyle, but you're kind of lonely yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you get at 1 p.m and it's like okay cool now what do i do there's nobody around like there's nobody i can go and have a coffee with or anything else so i found it deeply lonely uh, yeah. uh, after a year um got speaking to mike who's the founder of jenny uh he was just desperately trying to find a good technical person to come and lead the team they didn't know whether they wanted cto or something else and i had a yeah. conversation with them and he said hey i'd love you to interview for a cto role um jenny was an that. ai insurance so the concept for journey was that we were transforming the way that insurance is sold 
a simple level that's 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 the mantra for where at the point where i joined jenny it evolved from a number of different ideas you know yeah. bot the builder back in the day where chat was the core yeah. but the idea being can you create a fluid interface a fluent interface that will allow you to understand what you're buying insurance for and why you're buying it and how much it's costing um quite uh hard to launch a new insurance company so we didn't really want to go down that route we didn't want to be an insurance company we wanted to transform the way insurance companies sold their products or had a conversation with their market um so we worked with uh, iag for mm-hmm. all the time i was there essentially trying to get the first product out the door which is generally powering uh, so iag is a big insurer here in new zealand yeah we were trying to power their car insurance sales process um and we were having really good success it was a really good kind of fluid interface they understood why and we were giving them really good data on uh you know what they were going to get out the other end um but prior to launch the world went to a shit storm and iag changed their tactics from really acquiring new customers to retaining the customers they had yeah which led to a cancellation of a deal and therefore not the runway that we thought we had um we had a little bit of cash in the bank and we were contemplating whether we could launch a different product like yeah. really consumer focused rather than being selling into enterprise like really launch our own insurance product but um but through time and and conversation hearts went in it so we didn't really want to go through another grind of really starting again uh well mikey especially didn't you yeah know, he's right written a lot about it you know um yeah he's doing a lot in that, that yeah. space now which is cool i love i love for me we're gonna we're gonna lose the word failure you know it's just attempt 100 percent. change it to attempt. Right, like um, First attempt. you know i'm the king of attempts yeah. um you know like some of my shots have gone on goal but you know like you won't score any goals if you don't take any shots yeah. right um you know i'm littered with with attempts so you know my first one was you snap us which was like i won the wellington um uh, startup weekend with you know like and then said oh cool i've got a startup business and then i remember going to the wedding show in wellington and handing out cards and showing people what you snap us was we got no inquiries from that <laughs> it was like uh, i think there's something fundamentally wrong with this mm-hmm. business um and it, you know it was the idea was you know you, you're at weddings people are going to turn up with their smartphones why not get all those photos in one place it kind yeah. of made sense and but people didn't actually want to encourage people to use their smartphones at weddings yeah. um, or didn't like those photos for various reasons. I could totally understand. But um, it you wasn't something I... You talked to Jason about that? Yeah, yeah. So I was working with Jason Naylor yeah. as well, like alongside, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. And, you know, we were we were banding around the ideas of, of what we could do. Um, but my heart wasn't in it. Like, yeah. it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue for a, for a 10-year journey, right? Like, if you want to start a startup, you've got to be in it for 10 years because that's really what it's about. What's your view on... so? When you're going around with an early stage product that potentially could change the game or mm-hmm. could create something that's not there yet yep. and people are telling you, oh, no, we don't need that, it's not a thing, but you in your mind know it's, it could be a thing, what's your view on how do you push through that barrier? It's an interesting one, right? Because like, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus is on proof. So you know, everything you're trying to do is just get a little bit more proof. All of startups are a like controlled experiments to a certain yep. extent. Until you're a business making money, you're all in experimentation mode. So, you know, the one hindsight from Journey is it took us too long to get to launch because it, and we were kind of fooling ourselves. That's the insurance companies as a Insurance, customer. enterprise, yeah. it was a slow moving space. Yeah. Um, it was kind of, that was the death knell for us was because we were in that space. Yeah. Um, developers are really classic. You know, I was talking to people around Hoist and every developer you went into a room with, it's like, yeah, cool, I'll build that in a weekend. I had to then sit them down and go, okay, name which weekend you're going to build this. Yeah. You know, like, 
how much time are you going to spend on it? How much time is it going to take you to maintain it? All of those things, yeah. which don't naturally become conversations. So usually you, if you've got a core product, you can get through that pain. You know, you can get through to them and say, actually, there's a pain point here that you should be paying attention to. Because yeah. most good products, most good companies will solve pain. Like, otherwise, why do they exist, right? Like, yeah. And it's just finding how you articulate that pain and where it is and who who experiences it and whether they're champions or salespeople or actually people who are going to buy your product or not. Um, awesome. So there's, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole journey you have to go through there. Yeah. yeah. And so you're now at Timely. But Timely have been. Or oh, not Timely or, anymore, is it? Yeah, so Timely is part of Evercommerce, which is yeah. a conglomerate of 52 different businesses in the services space. So yeah. anybody who sells time for a living should be using one of our products is the, is the aim, you know, yeah. from builders, plumbers, handy people through to, uh, you know, in America, Doctors when they're running their studio, their their health health practices. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, through to our sector, which is the wellness sector. So timely is in uh, hairdressing, hair and beauty sector. So pretty much yep. we power a lot of the hairdressers and and beauty parlors for uh, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Yeah, we've also got another product called Salon Biz, which is in America. Um, so I run the tech teams for both of those essentially. Um, Bigger yeah. team now with a global partner. Is yeah, so how's that part feel? of a three thousand? No, not quite that. Two, two, two and a bit thousand person organization in Evercommerce. Yeah. But I really focus on those two products um, and around about fifty or so engineers across both of those products, um, which is which is great. They all have different quirks and different things that that make them amazing yeah. but the people it's always about the people so i yeah. love working with the people at timely and and Salambiz and you know evercommerce they're all really genuine people um, yeah yeah it's just working out uh you know how did they operate within a bigger within a bigger context it's always fun yeah yeah and so how, how did that change after Scoff left? So Scoff was the founding CTO. Yeah, so I was coaching Scoff uh, as an executive coach and he mentioned that, you know, like through, you know, uh, coach confidentiality that he yeah. was going to take some money off the table and m- move on, yeah. um, go and fly planes or, yeah. you know. Like That's all he does now apparently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to be in that position. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, my coaching business, I thought I could, make a or i was doing virtual cto and coaching at the same time uh virtual cto just wasn't going to work everybody wants the cto for for a day a week but use them for five days a week yeah. so you know like i'd i'd not be on the clock but i'd be getting the problems from the team because yeah. you're managing an entire team so yeah. it's it's hard um so kind of february-ish of 22 21 sorry and decided ah, this isn't for me hey I'd like to put my hat in the ring for that job that you've got going at Tamley um, and interviewed and took that role uh, with the idea that I would take over from Scoff in about August. Um, and then the acquisition was announced in June to me as well. So I didn't yeah. have any prior knowledge that that was going to happen. Um, and then uh, he moved on. Uh, the difference now is we are still run as an, as an entity, you know, like I get to make decisions day in, day out around yeah. how technology is built. Obviously, all of our budgets roll up to a wider organization. So we're we're driven with a we're now a profitable growth rather than growth at all costs. You know, whereas yep. early startups, you're just spending money to try yep. and grow this engine as fast as you can. We're now trying to grow within that that margin of profitability. So you know, um, which is which is fun. It's a different challenge. You know, you're making different decisions than you would yep. have had you gone. Okay, I've got ten million in the bank and I've got to spend it in order to make 
better returns than a bank would. Yeah. Um, here we're kind of trying to grow the whole company ever commerce wide. Uh, and, you know, because we're now multinational organizations exposed to lots of different markets, yeah. you've got, you know, America's going into massive recession. Well, not massive recession, but yeah. a recession, um, you know, and we've, we're not yet there in New Zealand or Australia. Not to say that we it's won't coming. ever be, it will yeah. be. Um, but, you know, we've all got to help each other as a, as a wide organization. So, do you, what, what's your take on this, right? So there's a lot of companies laying people off at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Big, tech, big tech companies. Yeah. What's your take on, do you think a lot of them just hide too much, too many people? Like, oh, it's never, it's never one answer to that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I certainly, there's a different, the, the companies you're seeing laying off right now are having to react because the market have told them they have to react, yeah. right? Like when you look at Facebook or, or AWS, or Microsoft, they could probably keep those staff on, but the market will not let them, right? Like yeah. there, there's a lot of shareholder pressure there. So, you know, US, like it or lump it, they shareholder pressure counts for a lot. Yeah. Um, so they have to make those decisions. There's the other startups that have just hit a brick wall of runway, right? Yeah. Like the runway is now what you thought was going to be three months because you could go and raise another capital round is now being extended out to 18 months. You know, this is essentially what we hit at AI, right? Like yeah. we ran out of runway earlier than we had anticipated because our, the product wasn't mature enough or the market wasn't mature enough or we weren't going to get the sales we wanted. And they were paying people lots of money. So you ended up, you have to rationalize, right? Yeah. You have to go, okay, we either, everybody's gone, like literally everybody in this entire company is gone within, you know, six months yeah. or we downsize the company and therefore the company might have a lot chance of surviving with less people for a wee while until we find where the next stage is. You know, I, I, while I don't like the fact that I had to go through letting quite a lot of people go at AI, it's my last act, you know, I walked yeah. out the door after having made our product engineering team pretty much redundant. Um, I do, I'd like to think I did it with good, like openness and honesty around why like we just were not going to make the numbers and we were never going to survive as a company if we didn't do something drastic um and it was drastic and right now that's what's happening right like the funding market is drying up because vcs do not want to invest in the uncertain times there are there are still vcs that will invest but they won't invest in the riskier businesses crypto's gone so you know like all of those companies no longer have a surefire market to raise the next round um and then everybody's pricing in inflation as well so your market mm. capitalization is lower so suddenly your company that was worth you know on paper a billion dollars is now worth you know a third of that because everybody's banking in years of seven eight percent inflation yeah so yeah. two i think we're how, how long have we been going Jono? Uh, all right, cool. So we've, yeah, we've been going. All right, well, we'll uh, edit this part out, but we'll, I'll wrap up with this question here. Um, okay, so on that then, um, what would you say to someone who's out there right now with an idea mm-hmm. and they're scared it's the wrong time? You know, they're looking at there's no more funding or there's yeah, funding's yeah. a lot harder yeah. now. What advice would you give to them? I would say start if you've got an idea that you need to get done and it and it works, you know, like fundamentally it's – it's something that you, you know, it's an itch that you really have to scratch. This is the best time to start a startup, right? Like Zero came, came out of the GFC. Yeah. Um, most of the big names that came out 
uh, early 2000s actually came out of the dot-com crash. You know, like it, it taught people to be better with money, to yeah. have a good runway. If you start a business now, you're going to be forced to have the fundamentals right and you're going to be focused on the right things. Whereas, you know, when in the era of free money, which was the last decade, yeah. so many of those companies were not focused on the right things. They were just like, oh, cool, I can start a business and I can raise lots of money. Let's go for it. Um, yeah. You know, I think it'll, it'll, we'll see some of the best companies coming out of this this era because they'll be fundamentally set up with the right foundations yeah. um, and that's you know you're solving a real core problem you're doing it effectively and efficiently and you know your you unit economics work at a certain level and um, all companies come down to those in the end yeah awesome yeah. awesome and get a good mentor yeah you know, for that, that stage <laughs> excellent man hey well thanks for thanks for joining me today it's been awesome chatting yeah, no with worries. you yeah i always like to wrap up by asking uh, one question at the end yeah. which is what makes you happy yeah, it's a, a, this, a, it's a scary question in the world because yeah. sometimes I don't know, right? Like I'm, I come off as a very happy person, but uh, sometimes, you know, like I can be quite lonely at the top. Yeah. Um, people, definitely people. Like, you know, I just love having chats and conversations with people and seeing people flourish. So getting to know lots of people and I like to think I've got some friends, you know. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, you definitely come across as a happy guy and the feedback on you as a recruiter is always, you know, strong. Like you, you do a lot of work in terms of, helping people that you work with or not just not just work with so well done mate cool awesome mate well thanks so much for taking your time today absolute um, pleasure yeah, let's, yeah. Um, no worries get, let you get back out there yeah thanks thanks cheers mate the reason why we started these podcasts is because we wanted to be able to give back to the audience and actually share people's stories and so I hope Owen's episode really gives a lot of people that understanding around leadership and technology leadership and he shares a lot of wisdom in that and so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please like and share and let us know if you want to see someone on the podcast and subscribe. This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Firms.